Welcome to Strictly Jojo, a podcast dedicated to Jojo's bizarre adventure where every Jojo episode is reviewed by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. This is episode eight, and we're reviewing part one Phantom Blood, Bloody Battle, Jojo and Dio. As always, there'll be spoilers for this episode and anything that's happened previously in Jojo, so you've been warned. I really enjoyed this episode. I think like this and the next one are probably top, like top tier for part one. I really, I really liked it just from like the nonsensical point of view, but also just the animation is is gorgeous in this compared to the last several episodes. I agree with you that the animation quality uh, is definitely higher than the previous ones. They I think David Production really upped the value of their animation here. I don't know if they just got a bigger budget or um, the studio banked even more on Jojo becoming a success, which I think was a given at any point. But rewatching this. You know, I had high expectations of, oh, let's see if this episode ends the part or is the penultimate end to the part on a on a high note. But I don't know if part of it just felt underwhelming to me. I don't know if it's because to me it felt like the actual battle between Jonathan and Dio felt so condensed. I think it only took place over the course of 15 minutes. Um, but it didn't, it didn't feel like as grand of a spectacle as their first battle in the mansion. I think that one felt a little bit more captivating. Yeah, that one was definitely a much longer battle. And even in the beginning of this battle for episode eight, Speedwagon starts off by saying like, as soon as they meet, the battle will be over. And like, he was kind of literal about it in that sense. Um, but I, I thought overall, so to me, it's not so much like the battle or, um, or anything like that that makes this episode. It's just all the buildup finally kind of making it to this one point. I mean, we we get the the showdown, you know, that we've been waiting for, or I guess the the second showdown after the the first one at the mansion. What do you call it? The rematch um, between Jonathan and Dio. Um, and I think really just finally being able to say like, okay, here it's it's time. It's happened. It's over and done with. Is really nice. And I think. To me, the, the the battle itself wasn't really the important part. It was, I guess, this is going to sound really cheesy, but the emotional battle that Dio and, and jo- Jonathan were having because they multiple times kind of recognized that they have history together, and this is not exactly the, the ending for their relationship that they were looking for. I get that. I think, you know, like as you said, the point of this episode is just the culmination of that relationship between them, um, and I think it's also to highlight how much Jonathan has grown in his journey through learning Hamon, but I think they shouldn't have sacrificed like the actual battle itself in service of that. I think they could have handled both pretty equally. Um, I'm going to make another Star Wars reference here. Uh, the battle itself, it just felt like a rehash of the graveyard battle, and the way I pictured it was kind of like, you know, in Return of the Jedi, the, the point of that was to blow up a second Death Star, which was basically... <laughs> what they had done in the first movie uh, for Star Wars A New Hope. Um, But yeah, I felt like they could have equally capitalized on the action itself um, instead of just shooing it in. Um, But I can can still understand like the significance of the emotional aspect of it. That makes sense. I think given the amount of emphasis they've put on Jonathan's growth with Hamon throughout these last several episodes, it would have been nice to see that all come to fruition, see that actually kind of um, see him hone those skills to the point where he's able to defeat Dio in this grand spectacle versus kind of just the the 
spinning fire punch that he does at the very end, which we'll talk about. Um, but I don't know. Overall, I think I, I just really enjoyed it because it was fast paced. It got through. Um, it, it just got us to, to that point that we've been waiting for. Um, and it it was just funny. There's so many funny parts of this episode, which, as always, we'll, we'll dive into as we talk more in depth about this episode. But I think we can just go ahead and jump right into it. So here is the synopsis for Part 1, Episode 8, Bloody Battle, Jojo and Dio. Papa Poco punishes Poco Loco and Poco for being out so late, and his sister has been out looking for him, which we know is false because she's currently trapped at Chateau de Dio. Dio sicks one of his monster minions named Doobie on her after she refuses to bend to his will, but she is saved in the nick of time by Jonathan and co. Doobie tries to pull a Medusa on Jonathan with some venomous bites from the snakes atop his head, but Jonathan flexes his muscles to fucking push the venom out of his body and boils his assailant into oblivion. Jonathan climbs a tower to find the dastardly Dio waiting for him, and they exchange Shakespearean pleasantries before readying up for one last rodeo. Dyer, however, tags in at the final second to exact revenge on Zeppeli Duda's behalf, but his Thundercross split attack proves no match for Dio's frigid air fortitude as his body is frozen and shattered into pieces. Because apparently, no one feels like warning these protagonists of the one move that Dio has constantly bested them by. Dyer spits a Hamon-infused rose into Dio's eye before getting Thanos dusted, which inspires Jonathan to slice his adopted brother in half with the Hamon-infused sword of pluck. Yet again, Dio begins to turn him into an ice pop and intends to make him his undead servant, but thanks to Jonathan's anime scheming, he is able to thaw himself through the sword as it is being heated by a torch behind Dio. Enraged at his brother's big brain time, Dio reassembles his body and resorts to one more ultimate freezing attack, but Jonathan musters up enough Hamon to set his gloves ablaze and deliver a two-handed sunlight yellow overdrive punch to the dastardly Dio. As his deteriorating body is sent flying off the tower's cliff, Dio launches one final attack by shooting Death Star lasers out of his eyes to pierce Jonathan before seemingly succumbing to his death. Jonathan is pretty much unscathed, but mourns for the loss of his bedeviled brother before collapsing to the ground in a Hamon heap. And now on to our next segment of the show, Is That a Music Reference, where we document any and all nods, homages, and tributes that this extraordinary anime makes to the ordinary world of music. There are two references in this episode. The one I think that is highlighted more is the introduction of the monster Doobie, which is a reference to the Doobie Brothers, a 70s American rock band. And I know Courtney is familiar with this band because they are known for the song, What a Fool Believes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which we always joke, if you take Carolyn Tuesday's first ending and mash it up with this song, they pretty much work hand in hand. Yeah, I think that song is, so the Carolyn Tuesday ending song is called Hold Me Now. Yeah. Um, And it just, every time I hear it, I love that song, but every time I hear it, I'm like, this sounds like that Doobie Brothers song. And then you'll go and sing that Doobie Brothers song right over Hold Me Now, and it just, it works so well. Yeah, especially with Michael McDonald's falsetto. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to try it again here. Um, The second music reference in this episode, which is a little more subtle, um, but it happens in like a couple seconds, is when Sreizo faces off against four different zombies who name themselves Paige, Jones, Plant, and Bonham. These are actually the band members of Led Zeppelin, uh, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, Robert Plant, and John Bonham. Although 
according to the subtitles that we watched, which typically uses uncopyrighted names, even though these are just names, I don't think people's names are copyrighted. They refer to them as Peju, Jones, Pluton, and Barnum. See, that that like confused me. Obviously, something was being referenced here when they were saying their names, but like I didn't know what it was the first time I watched the show because I'm like, what the fuck are those names? But I, I, sometimes the localization of um, JoJo names, and this will become more apparent as we get further along in the, the JoJo parts, they're, they're so they're they're a stretch like some of them some of them they give a genuine effort to you know try to find a localized name that won't be copyright you know infringing on something but some of them are just like really really bad and i feel like these four were just like bad (laughs) also it's just weird that they i guess araki just wanted to name these four zombies in particular even though they're dispensed of by straight so like less than five seconds later. Yeah, I noticed that too, that they take the time to, the, the amount of time it takes for them to actually say their names to straights, he dismiss, like dispels them in, in less time than that. So it's like, why, why even bother naming them at that point? They could have just been another four, another set of four zombies that are attacking them, just like the horde that comes in immediately after. Yeah, but I guess that makes two different references to Led Zeppelin and JoJo. So there you go. Now it's time for the JoJo meme rundown, where we list each new JoJo meme that appears in each episode. For this one, I think the only meme that appears is a very big one, probably one of the biggest JoJo memes that we have. And that is, you fell for it, fool. Thunder cross split attack, said by Dyer right before he explodes. Can I just say that the first time we watched JoJo, I remember you would send me memes after every episode that featured a new meme and this was the one that i think you abused the most because <laughs> i apparently there's a subreddit called you fell for it fool which is just full of memes dedicated to this one particular scene it has um so i love that subreddit because it has the the, the main post i guess is a screenshot of dyer saying you fell for it fool uh, thundercross split attack but people would then link that post discreetly in other places on reddit so that you know if they're you know in some random subreddit completely unrelated to jojo or anime someone would be like oh you know does anyone have a link to xyz and they'd be like oh yeah i've got it here and they drop a link but then it would link back to thundercross split attack so sometimes it landed because the person knew what it was and sometimes it didn't land they're probably like what the fuck is this but i think because of that because of all the tiebacks the thundercross split attack post I think had well over 100,000 likes, and I think it almost reached the number one post for either like 2018 or 2019. I'm not sure I'm going to look it up while we're talking here. Um, but yeah, it, they were trying to go for it being, because you know how Reddit will, will show um, you know the, the top posts for the year. Mm-hmm. This was so close. I think it was bested by something in, in our pictures, um, but it was so close to reaching the number one spot for that year as like the most upvoted uh, post on, on Reddit. Oh, this is probably one of the most stupid, but still the most hilarious memes out of part one of JoJo. Um I'm trying to recall some of the ones that you had sent me, but the stupidest one was like, you know, knock, knock, joke, like knock, knock, who's there? You fell, you fell who? And then it's you fell for it, fool. And then they send the, uh, send a picture of Dyer doing the Thundercross split attack. It's equivalent to like the Rick roll, but yeah. for anime, but 
I, I just, I love it so much. It's fantastic. Okay, so I'm looking at it here. It right now has 285,000 um, upvotes, 16,000 comments, and I think it was posted a year ago. So I guess, yeah, for 2019 or maybe 2020. I don't know. Either 2019 or 2020, it, it almost reached the the number one post um, on Reddit. So that would have been really cool. I think it was top 10. So that's that's amazing. So if you haven't followed that subreddit, please do so because it keeps this meme alive. Is it still active? It is. Yeah, it's cool. still active. And I hope it never goes away. But that's it. That's our, I think, the only meme for this episode. As always, if we miss any memes from this episode, please let us know. You can contact us either uh, through our website or through Instagram or Twitter. Let's go back to the animation for a second because I do want to comment on this a little bit further. We see a huge jump in production quality from episode 7 to episode 8. I mean, the, the animation improves dramatically. The way the characters are drawn um, is has a notable improvement where the lines are much more precise. There's a lot of more crispier. like, yeah, it's, it's crispier. There's more bold lines to really accent different features. You've got um, better lighting and like highlighting on the characters faces. And I don't know, just everything was drawn very, very nice. There are some moments where I felt like Jonathan was drawn a little bit different than he has been in the past, but nothing that like is is too different to the point where he doesn't seem like the, the same character. But I just really appreciated, especially given the importance of this episode to the overall part one story, that they they kind of went all in on on the animation here. And I think that does carry over into episode nine. Um, it just, everything looked so pleasing. I really, really enjoyed it and very much appreciated it. And also, by the way, the colors were much more vibrant and bold in this episode. Yeah, I think it makes sense that a lot of their production budget probably went into these last two episodes of part one just because of their their importance to the story. Um, yeah, the only thing I have to say is like watching this episode compared to the last seven, you definitely get more of a feel for like the, the JoJo face style of animation because uh, there are just so many close-ups in here where you can distinctly see like the those lines that kind of shadow under each character's eyes or the definition of their like cheek or jaw lines. Um, so it's, it's much more prevalent here. And I guess that makes you just appreciate the distinct style that Araki and David production have contributed to um, the overall style of Jojo. The first scene of this episode is Poco and his dad. Um, and like the, the very first moment is, Poco's dad slapping him in the face and and that just brings up the question why does everyone in this family like to slap Poco because we got an earlier shot a of bit. <laughs> we got that earlier shot of his sister slapping him in the flashback and now his dad slapping his face and then when we progress a little bit further in the episode Poco's sister who I don't even know if she has a name but Poco's sister then slaps Dio in the face I'm like man this this family likes to slap the shit out of other people how can she slap <laughs> and then also i thought that in the previous episode they said that the whole town had become zombies or at least they suspected it but yet his dad was still okay i found that to be odd it but seems like the whole poco family is immune yeah <laughs> from the deals deals grass it was very important to keep poco's dad alive just so that he could slap the shit out of poco's face i think the significance of poco's sister slapping Dio, and yeah i don't think they ever named her at all like through these two episodes that we've been introduced to her by. Um, it reminded me of how Irina had slapped Dio those many years ago. 
Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of what sets him off. I don't know if that was intended, but after that point, he's like, fuck this. I'm not dealing with this lady anymore. Yeah. It also just kind of shows the strength behind Poco's sister with no name, um, that she's seemingly one of the, the first women who, even though captured by Dio and put in this very tough situation, is unafraid of standing her ground and slapping him in the face and giving him a little bit of what he deserves at this point. Which also, I, I do want to say, though, it was nice of Dio to kill off that really creepy squirrel dog thing. Yes. Because, man, that was, not only are they creepy looking in general, but then it gets creepier because that man dog thing then starts to look at jailbait 16-year-old Poco's sister with no name. And even Dio's like, yo, that's not okay. And immediately, like, disapproves and, and kills him. I think he, like, curb stomps his face into the ground. Yeah, so it kind of shows that Dio still has a somewhat gentlemanly side to him. And yeah, those things were the stuff of nightmares. But even more confusing, I think, is after we get introduced to Doobie, um, he's bested by a fucking anvil that falls from the ceiling. And I'm just like, where the fuck did Jonathan and friends get an anvil from? Yeah, that was my question, too. Maybe they're readily available in that day and age. But I'm like, first of all, an anvil of all things, like not a rock or a brick, but an anvil. And then how did they get it? But also who carried it there and then threw it down the hole? I think it was Jonathan that threw it down the hole. But like who carried it there? Probably Jonathan. Yeah, because I don't think you just find an anvil ready on like a rooftop. And You what, have like, to like carry it from town. Like it's, yeah. aren't anvils used by like blacksmiths? Yeah, to kind of carve out or like hammer out weapons or whatever. Yeah, so you would have to fucking carry an anvil from town in the hopes, first of all, that you find Dio, and then second of all, that you can go up high enough to be able to drop it down. Just yeah, the logic this is a behind tower. that. <laughs> like, yeah, the mansion's on a tower, or like high above the ground. Like that's a lot to just carry it from wherever Poco's family wherever their house is all the way to that that mansion yeah so um props to whoever carried it up there who again i suspect is jonathan um it's just i'm sure him flexing his hummel and strength at that point i also do want to call out that i think in this fight with doobie jonathan says yada yada da mm -hmm. and um without spoiling anything for future parts this does become very very significant in part three so you'll hear this resurface when we get to part three down the road Actually, and for anyone who's watched the show, I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I like how there are hints of other characters down the road that you see here in part one that you don't recognize. And that's probably because like us watching this a second time, we can pick up on these things. But I think that's like two references that I've noticed or one of two references that I've noticed to future characters. This one, the yada, yada, da. And then even um, I think I mentioned in a previous episode, Jonathan's gloves also hearken to a future character. So it's nice to get those little hints here and there of things that we are that we will continue to see that aren't of much significance now, but they'll have a deeper meaning later on. Dyer does comment during this battle with Jonathan and Doobie that Jonathan can control his blood so well that he's able to expel the poison from those snakes from his body, even after such a short amount of training. And this has been a constant theme, especially for these last several episodes, you know, after um, Zapelli kind of completed most of the training with Jonathan, that he is learning things so quickly and that, um, you know, he now has not only his father's resolve, but also Zapelli's, you know, determination at this point to to help him grow exponentially in order to be able to face Dio. So it was nice to kind of have that that we, we've gotten that that um, 
confirmation from other characters that yes, Jonathan is growing at a very fast pace because he has a very important goal in mind. But to have somebody who's on an expert level of Hamon usage like Dyer actually come out and say like, wow, this is impressive, um, I think just really brings that full circle um, that, that Jonathan pretty much has become the Hamon master that he needs to be. Yeah, I noted here that Jonathan has basically mastered Hamon in just a few weeks, um, or even just in this in this one night, because they had their battle with Theo earlier, and then they have this battle at night. Um, and that's compared to, I think Dyer or Strachel mentions that they had two decades or 20 years of training that they had to go through in order to reach the level of Hamon that they have become experts at now. Um, so I think it's a reflection of just, like you said, how much Jonathan has grown in using Hamon. Um, that kind of makes me wonder, like, what makes him so special about using Hamon? Um, again, He's a Joe Star, I mean, man. yeah. <laughs> There's probably, like, yeah, some, some magical thing in the Joe Star blood that kind of makes him this OP character. Um, but another thing about this scene that was just funny is, like, you know, Jonathan's facing off against Doobie, and he pushes the poison out of his face, and basically melts Doobie and the rest of this group is just watching him instead of lending a hand which I get it like they want to observe Jonathan's skills but you know what if what if my man needed help at one point (laughs) yeah I think they most likely they are the ones who let Jonathan carry the anvil all the way to the tower so why not just let him continue to to carry everyone on his back you know yeah (laughs) but going back to what you said about how this has only been one night since the previous fight with Dio I didn't even really realize that um you're right like they we've had you know a couple of who knows weeks days i don't know how long it took for zapelli to train jonathan and hamon but then they arrived to win night's lot and this whole like several episode saga of win like win night's lot really only takes place in show in about one night or so so i think that goes back to what dio said about jonathan when they were fighting in the mansion that the harder you hit him the more powerful he becomes. And Mm. here's Dio just throwing enemy after enemy after enemy at Jonathan. And while the first couple of enemies, you know, Bruford um, and Tarkus were really tough, now he's just like wiping through these enemies like it's nothing. Because again, he's been hit, quote unquote, like figuratively by Dio so many times that he's pretty much had enough of his shit. And he's he's on a mission to, to reach Dio and end this nonsense. And we get to that point of, you know, the beginning of the showdown between Dio and Jonathan. I really loved the exchange that Dio and Jonathan have before they started their battle. It's very Shakespearean. It's it's so important because I think we it's it's easy to forget as an audience member that they share a very special bond, even if that bond was kind of tainted by Dio's behavior when they were kids like they grew up together they spent what was it seven eight years living together Mm -hmm. um and so even though they they hate each other there is still something there that they cannot deny and they don't deny which I think is is really great to see And, and Dio comments on how he didn't want to have to defeat Jonathan himself and that he doesn't necessarily look forward to turning him into one of his undead servants and Jonathan kind of you know, comments back saying that he now feels no guilt in defeating Dio, which is a huge change for his character because earlier on, especially when we were watching them grow up together, um, Jonathan always hesitated in going against his adopted brother. He would always try to find that glimmer of hope, kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. But Jonathan's reached this point where he's like, I've had enough of your shit, Dio. 
I need to defeat you and I have no guilt in doing so. But he does say, though, that it pains him as a gentleman to want to do this through means of revenge, but he needs to do it in order to avenge his father, Zapelli, and even Bruford, because these are important people, important figures to him that Dio has pretty much disgraced. Yeah, it just shows that Jonathan still has that sense of honor, even though he has to kill this this evil being that has become his brother. Um, and yeah, I like how you see the faces of all those who have passed before Jonathan. Uh, I believe you see Bruford, Zeppoli, uh, George Joestar, all of these people that have affected Jonathan in some way or form, but have also been deeply affected by the actions that Dio has taken. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of the culmination of what has to happen between Jonathan and Dio and what jo- uh, Jonathan has to do in order to take down his brother. But despite this important conversation and what it's leading up to, one of the most obnoxious things happens. Fucking Dyer tries to steal Jonathan's thunder, no pun intended, and he wants to exact his own revenge for Zapelli. Like, are you serious? That's so rude, man. I was watching that. Like, I, the first couple of times I watched it, I didn't really think it, anything of it. But watching it with a more critical eye this time around, I'm like, wow, wait a minute. That's really rude of him to do. Like, I get he spent two decades training with Zapelli. But, man, Jonathan did all of this work to get to Dio and has this personal connection with him. So it's kind of shitty of Dyer to kind of just step in at the last moment and try to take all the glory of defeating Dio at the end. And the other thing is, I think I mentioned this, the at the end of our last episode, a lot of the supporting characters in this part, they don't really contribute much. And I think it's the same case here. Like, I think Dyer was just meant as a sort of plot device to, you know, make Jonathan even resolve more to defeat Dio because Dio could just, or just easily incapacitated Dyer at this moment. But yeah, it was just weird for Dyer to just say, hold on, let me... Let me have a go at this guy first. And Dyer, you know, commits to the uh, the full Thundercross split attack with his slow-mo jump towards Dio and then his, like, thigh blaster split, kind of pulling his arms apart. But to your point, as you mentioned in your synopsis, apparently Jonathan and Speedwagon forgot to warn Dyer and the rest of the group about Dio's ability to freeze limbs because he immediately does that and everyone's surprised. I'm like, mm-hmm. how are you guys? So I mean, I get like Tom Petty and strides are surprised because they haven't seen this before, but I'm like, Jonathan Speedwagon, How are you surprised at this point? The first thing that you would think they would do is to sit down with these new guys and say, Hey, we fought Dio a couple times. Here's what he's capable of. Here's what his moves are like. Please be wary of these things, but nope, they didn't do that. I guess. Yeah. It's meant to highlight you know, because Dyer and Straight, so and Tom Petty are these like come on experts, and maybe just Dyer was arrogant enough to think that he could still take on Dio, whereas Jonathan, you know, has has observed Dio through all of these battles and has, has taken a more calculated approach. But yeah, that, this was the most annoying thing of this whole battle sequence is Dio's just using the same moves as from the graveyard battle, and like I said with my Star Wars reference, it's it's like the he's this is the second death star like you've seen this threat before like why can't you why can't you figure a way around it or i guess in terms of story development like why can't they choose another power that they have to overcome dio by and jonathan even 
notes that after seeing Dyer fail in this moment, he now knows how to use his Hamon against Dio and his freezing attack. I'm like, so it was Dyer dying that led you to this realization, not the fact that you've experienced this freezing move multiple times already. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm I'm a bit surprised that you didn't think, you know, kind of 10 steps ahead before this battle started on how to get around this freezing move. And one thing that I noted, you kind of see the motif of this rose make uh, frequent appearances throughout the episode. The first time, going back to the scene between Dio and Poco's sister, he compares her to a rose that will, you know, bloom and wither away versus his own capability to be immortal, Um, which is kind of ironic because by the end of this episode, Dio literally withers away like a rose uh, when Jonathan defeats him. Um, And you see that come up again because Dyer's last move with his his lone head (laughs) on the (laughs) cart of roses is he throws a hamon-infused rose into Dio's eye, which allows Jonathan to later on attack his blind side. And I think right before Jonathan's last move with, uh, was it Sunlight Yellow Overdrive? He throws Dio off by throwing a bunch of roses at him. So you, you just see like this this motif come up again and again. I think kind of symbolizing, like I said, this is Dio's time to wither away, or I guess like every rose has its thorn. Or like that Dio is trying to, at all costs, avoid the life cycle of a rose because mm-hmm. as he's falling from the cliff, he even says like, I was supposed to live for centuries. I was supposed to live forever. And that's clearly not what happened here. Yeah. But I do also like that Jonathan, so despite Dyer trying to steal his moment from him, Jonathan still finds a way to give his stupid, really just like dumb death purpose because he says again, like because Dyer was defeated, I now know what to do to defeat Dio. And that's him giving Dyer's death like purpose like a true gentleman would because honestly, again, like it's it's a weak ass death. Like it's such a weak ass death for Dyer, but Jonathan doesn't want him to to die in that light. He wants mm-hmm. to show that okay, this was meant for something greater. <laughs> I'm like that's that's very nice of you, Jonathan, but we can all agree that Dyer kind of deserved that. <laughs> yeah. Um I wrote a note here too like you only get with these other antagonists that are present, um you only get very brief glimpses of their powers. Again with Dyer being taken out in like less than 10 seconds. Um Again, they only serve to underline like Jonathan's importance in taking down Dio, but it's kind of disappointing that they all just get sidelined with, you know, these, I guess, basically NPCs or not NPCs, but like these lesser level enemies. Like they have to take care of them first, while Jonathan has to take care of Dio. Even though Don Petty and Straitzer again are these Hamon masters who probably could have teamed up with Jonathan. But again, I know like Jonathan is supposed to be the one destined to take down Dio. But yeah, it's just weird. Like, again, with these other supporting characters, they're just kind of pushed to the side so that they can focus on the Joestar at hand. Yeah, you'd you'd presume that the most skilled Hamon user in this room is Tom Petty because he's the master. He's who trained Dire Straits and Zapelli. So it is it is odd that we don't get to see even a glimpse really of any of his skills. But mm-hmm. I get it. Like to your point, it would kind of just undermine everything that Jonathan has had done at that point. 
Um, and, and kind of on that theme of learning and growth, I, I liked that Jonathan used um, Pluck, the sword from Bruford, uh, because this in conjunction with Dyer's death, making a, helping Jonathan, Jonathan realize how to defeat Dio, um, everything that he's learned from Zapelli in terms of like Hamon mastery, his father's resolve, this all kind of compounds each other and, and culminates into this this very important moment where Jonathan's able to face off Dio. It's like Jonathan recognizing that he wouldn't be where he is without all of these important figures teaching him something that added up to his great power in this moment. Yeah, I think this is a literal embodiment of the word pluck. I think I mentioned this when we first are introduced to the sword. Like pluck is basically using your hardships and trials to move forward and that's what jonathan does here he finds a way to kind of circumvent dio's power by using his big brain time to make sure that the sword is hitting that torch and thawing him um while dio is unaware although i did note that you don't see jonathan's sword touching the torch behind dio until he reveals it like there are shots of the sword protruding behind dio's back but they are not like hovering above the torch hmm. maybe uh he slowly <laughs> pushed dio back i don't know it's, yeah it's one of those jojo logic things mm-hmm. but yeah it was really nice to kind of see jonathan use what he's learned and what he's been given from all those before him in this moment so then that kind of leads into the big fight right and the whole time Speedwagon is narrating the entire fucking thing like, like a, a sports boxing, announcer yeah, a boxing match or something <laughs> but what's funny is like he shouts out loud like he literally screams to the whole room that Jonathan is moving to the right which is Dio's blind side and I'm sure the whole time Jonathan's thinking in his head like dude shut up like why are you giving away my position you're putting me in a very vulnerable spot right now so I almost wonder if Speedwagon wasn't narrating everything how things would have turned out like would would Dio not have been able to best Jonathan the way that he did because this this whole fight is kind of like a battle of one-ups it's like jonathan does something that you think ends the fight but then dio turns around and does something that continues the fight and then jonathan comes in again and presumably ends the fight but then dio's like now nah, i got this up my sleeve and the fight's still going <laughs> yeah perfect example of anime scheming although i think there's one episode in part two that kind of bests the anime scheming oh yeah in, in, <laughs> in this episode And to your earlier point about this fight in general just not being, not living up to the expectations in a sense, I feel like Dio and Jonathan's intensity itself was way more intense than the actual fight. Like Mm -hmm. this is honestly a pretty subdued fight. As you noted, it's very short, but the fighters themselves are acting over the top. Therefore, it feels like an over the top fight. No, yeah, for sure. I think they overact in in a sequence that, feels underacted <laughs> that's the best way that i can describe it we do get that really cool moment where jonathan slices dio in half with his hamon infused sword um but then i did note that he stops slicing him right before his dick like a true gentleman oh. he's like i won't damage the goods okay i'll won't just cut out your man yeah i'll just cut right before or I'll, I'll stop cutting right before we get to that part of your body <laughs> i think that whole sequence um was animated very perfectly um obviously you can see there's a misalignment i think when dio tries to push his head together you see the misalignment of his mouth and then he takes a quick pause realizes it and then just shoves his face back together (laughs) it was just like a a nice little comic relief moment um 
during this this intense scene. And also to add on add to that, his eye, what is it, the the right eye mm-hmm. that's damaged, you see it continue to be squinty, like he he still is in pain, like it still is damaged. But what I found funny was that um later on when Dio kind of refuses his body back together, it's weird that like he heals his body being sliced in half, but he didn't bother to heal his eye because his eye still continues to be squinted on that side. Mm. So I feel like in some ways he didn't fully like heal his eye. I don't know. It just that was interesting to me. Plus the fact that somehow his clothing went back together <laughs> after oh, yeah. he fused his body back together. I'm like, that literally can't happen. <laughs> like I don't know how you did that just now, but that's not a thing. <laughs> the most nauseating part of this episode has got to be the fucking vein part when Dio stabs his fingers Ooh. into Jonathan's neck and then pulls out that major vein. What do they call it? Like a the carotid, carotid artery. Yeah, it was fucking disgusting. And I am not the type that gets squeamish very easily. Like it, it takes a lot for me. Like I'll, I'll watch some pretty gruesome shit. Um, like thinking about like saw and things like that. Like I, I can watch those and, and feel pretty comfortable, but man, this actually does make me queasy every time I have to watch it. Just him holding the fucking like major vein in his fingers and then like wiggling it around between his fingers was just too much for me to handle. <laughs> yeah. See, I hate, I hate anything related to like, I don't know if you consider this like medical things, but you know, just things in the body that are protruding from where they shouldn't be. <laughs> uh, so yeah, watching him twirl that was like, I could feel it in my neck. And I don't know if anyone else out there <laughs> had the same thing, but yeah, I had to kind of turn away and just kind of look at the subtitles instead of instead of looking at the actual scene. Cause yeah, that was, that was nasty. But I think after all is said and done, um, you know, both Dio and Jonathan launched their last attacks against each other. Again, all Dio can do is put up his his freeze attack <laughs> while Jonathan I think he puts both of his hands together and kind of sets them ablaze and does this double punch on Dio that he's able to get through his defenses and then disintegrate Dio with with the Hamon and this kind of harkens back to again with Jonathan what you said before the harder you hit him the stronger he gets stronger he gets <laughs> And you kind of see that verbalized here by Jonathan where he says, with enough conviction, anything is possible. And that's what allows him to finally break through Dio's defenses. Um, And I like how he literally punches through Dio's back. It reminded me of Jet Li's character in Fearless. Oh, yeah. Yeah, remembers that movie. Like, he didn't punch him, like, through the back, but it was basically the same thing. And then that just sends um, Dio flying through the air and disintegrating and him trying to calculate his his last minute attack against Jonathan before, you know, succumbing to death. His eye beam of death. You but know, I, the, the Death Star laser is coming out of his eyes. We should take one step back though and actually analyze how Jonathan executes this final Hamon punch. He fucking twirls around like a ballerina. Really slow motion too, by the way. I don't know if it's like slow-mo in the show, like they slowed it down for us, or if in real life he's twirling at a really slow pace. But I'm like, Dio, honestly, how did you not see this one coming? Like he he twirls around, I think almost a full three times. And it's very slow. Yeah. Too. And like sticks his hand in the fire while in the background you have Speedwagon literally narrating the whole thing saying he just lit his fist on fire. And I'm like, Dio, of all the moments for you to use your like superhuman abilities to dodge or to like counter, this would have been that moment. But I don't know, man, maybe it was the combination of like, 
having his body split down to his dick in half and having an eye like poked out with a rose that just threw Dio for a loop, no pun intended, with Jonathan looping around like that. Yeah, I guess, you know, Dio's just on his last legs and he kind of saw, like he didn't see any of that coming. I think they were trying, I don't know, maybe maybe David Production was trying to make this punch seem really kind of like wound up and intense. Like there was a lot of power behind it, but it did not translate translate that way on screen. Like it, it to me just looked very silly, mm-hmm. um, but it did the job. It, it defeated Dio, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and after he lands that death hamon punch jonathan sheds a tear for dio as he watches him fall down the cliff to his demise and again this is another very important part of the episode you know all all the silliness aside the the important part of this episode as we noted earlier is really the the exploration of jonathan and dio's relationship how it still has a, a lasting effect on them um and kind of how they they come to this resolution how they kind of what do you call it like come to terms how mm-hmm. they come to terms with everything that they've been through and what they have to do to end this this endless battle um but you see jonathan cry and and poco actually asks speedwagon like why is he crying for the bad guy and speedwagon says it's because they grew up together so like a, tr- a true gentleman even though jonathan claims he feels no guilt for killing dio that doesn't mean he doesn't feel sad on some level yeah, I think this is probably the second instance where you see Jonathan kind of respecting his enemy. The first time was Bruford, but it's more significant here because it is it is his adopted brother. Um, and yeah, despite, you know, everything that Dio has done and all the evil acts he's, he has incurred, like Jonathan still can't let go of the human aspect of it, um, which makes him a, a pretty respectable fighter, like being able to show some some sort of respect to your opponent um even if they are a fucking evil lunatic (laughs) yeah he is a a true gentleman a a real i think positive and and kind-hearted protagonist for this story and the last thing with this scene and i didn't expect to be so affected by it but the way that you know um our speedwagon kind of cradles jonathan in his arms and he looks up to the sky and he says like are you watching baron zapelli he did it um oh it was kind of touching because you know as much as like speedwagon calls out the obvious in the scenes um this was still a very uh very endearing moment um because it kind of culminates like he's seen jonathan throughout all of these different uh, battles and and circumstances throughout this journey and so for him to finally see the closure of it um and kind of call out the person that has helped them out through this journey who didn't get to see it all the way through it's it's just very very endearing yeah this is why speedwagon is best waifu this is why people love him because he takes no credit for anything that's happened and not to say that he's been completely useless or anything he's that support that they've needed throughout and he has had his moments where he's played a big part in battles like again when he pulls out his fucking ripped abs and like uses his steam coming from his body to melt zapelli's hands so he can go back into battle like Speedwagon is by no means useless, but he also does not take any credit um, or try to to claim he's played a big part in all this. So he wants to show respect um, and wants to show that support to those who have led them to this point where they're able to essentially save the world. Mm -hmm. And I think the the last thing that I want to mention about closure in this episode is you actually see that um, with the credits because 
I'm sure like they've done this in other episodes, but in this particular credit sequence um, for Roundabouts, yes, they use the closing section of the song. So the very end of it. Um, so I think like one, they're utilizing the song to its fullest effect, which is kind of nice because you're not constantly hearing the the same part of the song over and over again in these credits. But yeah, I think this is kind of signifying, you know, like the Jonathan is finally, he's done it. As Speedwagon said, he did it. He finally did it. And it's a long song. If you haven't actually yeah. listened to um, Yes, or no, Roundabout by Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what, seven minutes? Yeah, it's a seven-minute song. Um, and it has like a very long interlude in the middle. But the whole song is amazing. It's worth the full seven minutes. Mm-hmm. The very, very, very last comment I want to make about this episode is that the entire time Jonathan is fighting and, you know, battling Dio and all these zombies, he's wearing a fucking backpack. He's wearing a backpack, which probably has stuff in it. And I'm like, can you imagine how difficult or annoying it would be to fight in a backpack? But for some reason, he just does it the whole time and is completely unaffected by his tiny little backpack, which I'm sure isn't actually tiny. It just looks tiny against his big ass back. But uh, when he fell down and, you know, he he collapsed from exhaustion, I was like, oh, my God, that's right. He's still wearing the goddamn backpack. What's in the backpack? Does he ever use it at all? Um, the anvil was in that backpack. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm sure that's sense. where they stored it. <laughs> yeah. And that brings us to our final thoughts for part one, episode eight, Bloody Battle, Jojo and Dio. What did you think overall about this episode? Again, I really liked it. Um, it's one of the highlight episodes for part nine for me. Granted, there's only nine episodes in this part, but it just was so nice to revisit that relationship between Dio and Jojo because oftentimes when two characters have history, they'll revisit to a certain degree, but it's like without a doubt, you know, they're they need to defeat each other, blah, 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 blah. But here we we feel some of that hesitation, even from Dio's side. I think that's that's the most striking point, is that from Dio's side of things, he still doesn't want to be the one to defeat Jonathan, even though he's hated Jonathan forever. He's been jealous of him. He's found him to be, you know, in the way of all of his plans. But I don't know. I think that was the most surprising thing to me is that Dio still didn't want to be the one to defeat him. Defeat him. He didn't want to be the one to end things like that. And on the flip side, Jonathan felt similarly and shed a tear for him. So the exploration of their their relationship in these final moments, I think, is what really brought the the whole thing home for me. But what about you? Yeah, I would say it, it's a somewhat satisfying climax of this rivalry or relationship between Jonathan and Dio. But as I said in the beginning, it doesn't. It just doesn't feel as epic as it should be, and it was kind of tiring to see Dio rehash the same move that he used in the last major battle, um, used here. But I guess it kind of signifies, you know, Jonathan's growth with Hamon um, throughout the f- what f- three or four episodes that we've seen him utilizing it. Um, and I think the biggest indicator that this battle wasn't as, I guess, grand as it should have been is, you know, like. With the OP of part one, it doesn't even show this battle. It shows like the mansion battle because I think that was held a lot more significance. Um, so I felt like the end of Dio's, I guess, epic showdowns with Jonathan, it it just doesn't seem significant here. Um, and overall, I think at this point with these episodes, it just feels like they're they just want to rush us along to the end of part one so we can get to the quote unquote good JoJo parts. Not to say that part one isn't any good, but I think with the pacing that they're they're doing with this part, it makes it seem a little bit 
little bit more forgettable than kind of being rightfully acknowledged for being the foundation that it sets for the rest of these bizarre adventures. Thinking about what you're mentioning earlier, uh, think about that a little bit more with the the showdown not being what it could have been or what it should have been. I think if they had removed the whole Poco and his sister piece from the episode, like Poco served his purpose in the last episode. Like he should have had mm-hmm. his ass dropped off at home so his dad could continue to slap him in the face. But, you know, Dio decided to capture his sister, so here we are. But if you had removed that and also I think not even brought like Tom Petty and Strites and Dyer into the um, into the, the situation or brought them into the fray, we would have had plenty of time to really have a full on like final battle between Jonathan and Dio. Um, because as I think about it more, as you were kind of explaining that, I feel like it was a situation where we had like too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Like as the battle between Dio and Jonathan was raging on, like there was so much crap going on in the background with the zombie hordes and with Tom Petty and Strites, but it was stuff that was not significant. Like you could have simply had no zombie hordes come out because Dio's too distracted with Jonathan. And then you wouldn't have even needed to have Tom Petty and Strites there. Like it just, it felt like there were too many people in the room when it just needed to be Jonathan and Dio with Speedwagon observing. No, yeah, I think everything that you mentioned is pretty much on point with, with what I was, was getting at. So, but yeah. We're nearing the end, folks, the end of part one. We have one episode left, and it's going to be a great one. So be sure to join us in two weeks for that episode. And with that, that wraps up this episode eight of Strictly JoJo. If you enjoy our show, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every other Monday. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series to connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com to share your thoughts on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. You'll also find more info on Strictly Anime, our other podcast for anime reviews and discussions, which we are celebrating one full year of on the day that this episode premieres, March 1st. So if you haven't checked it out, be sure to do that. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our love of JoJo. Stay weeb, everyone. To be continued.